My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church. It's my privilege this morning to, to open our Bibles together and explore this passage in Genesis chapter 1. It's an interesting passage. It's a fascinating passage in a lot of ways, so I'm excited to dive in here. So let's, uh, let's do that now. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 31, the passage my wife Carol just uh, read a couple of minutes ago. All right, so as you're getting settled in for the sermon this morning, let me, let me kind of unsettle things a bit for us. You may feel at this moment as if you're sitting still right now, but it's actually an illusion of miraculous proportion. This planet Earth where we find ourselves is spinning on an axis that we cannot see at a speed of roughly 1,000 miles per hour. And every 24 hours, like clockwork, planet Earth pulls off a celestial 360 around that invisible axis. Not only that, it is predicted that this planet Earth and and us too are are hurtling through space at an average velocity of 67,000 miles per hour in a universe that is growing and expanding. That's not just faster than a speeding bullet, that is 87 times faster than the speed of sound. So even on a day when you feel like you didn't get much done, don't forget that you did travel 1.6 million miles through space. These numbers are extremely difficult to get our minds around, that's to be sure. And yet, by all indications, they are entirely accurate. And get this, our Milky Way galaxy, which is bigger than we can even imagine, is thought to be just one of over 100 billion different galaxies now believed to exist in this universe. Now, if these things are not miraculous, I do not know what is. And yet, when was the last time that you thanked God for keeping us in orbit? I'm guessing you've never prayed to God, Lord, thank you for getting me through this day. I wasn't sure we'd uh, make the full rotation today, but you did it again. And that is the ultimate irony in some respects, that we trust God for the big miracles. In fact, we assume them like they're no big deal, and yet we struggle trusting him for his smaller movements and miracles in our own lives. Believe it or not, that's one of the reminders that the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 is giving us here, that our God is a big God who does big and miraculous things. And if we can trust him with the big things of the cosmos, we should be able to trust him with the smaller things of our lives. Genesis chapter 1 reminds us of God's sovereignty and power over our creation. Last week, we saw God speaking into existence the entire cosmos and then creating on this planet hospitable environments, the sky, the sea, and the land. And this week, we're going to see God inhabiting those environments with life. And there are four main points I'd like to kind of draw out of this text today. God brings order to life. God brings beauty to life. God brings dignity to life. And God brings enjoyment to life. First, God brings order to life. One of the things that we see in this passage, uh, which we talked about last week as well, is is its uh, poetic structure. And one of the things we see in that poetic structure as we look a little closer is really a fascinating hierarchy. There's an interesting order and organization in the way that this creation account has been given to us. You you may remember the table that was shown on the screen last week and and that was put in your notes, and I'd like to show that again for a moment. You can see there that on days one, two, and three, God created these different realms. 
the light, the sky, the sea, and the land. And on days four, five, and six, we see in perfect parallelism, God populating those realms with life, with living creatures who would, in a sense, govern those realms and rule over those realms. There's a certain structure, a certain kingly structure to this, where you have these uh, different realms and you have different rulers within those realms carrying out certain roles and functions in ruling over them. For example, on the first day, God said, let there be light, and there was light. But then on the fourth day, it says in verse 16, God made a greater light and a lesser light. And the text tells us that God made the greater light to rule the day, and he made the lesser light to rule the night and to serve as signs for the seasons and for the days and the years. This text, of course, is talking about the sun and the moon. On the second day, God created two more realms, the water and the sky. And then on the fifth day, in verses 20 to 23, he creates those creatures who would rule over those realms, namely fish and birds. He creates aquatic life to rule the realm of the sea, and he creates aerial life to rule the realm of the sky. On the third day, God created the realm of land, and then on the sixth day, in verses 24 to 26, he creates the rulers of that realm, first animals, and then finally, humans. Now, as we talked about last week, we considered Genesis chapter 1 as a song of sorts, as a poem, as a poetic narrative of the creation account that is meant to, it's meant to teach us more about what God created and why he created it than exactly how he created it. And one of the things we see here is that God brings order and organization to life by providing these hospitable realms and then by creating living beings who would fill and populate and rule over these realms. And God's intention and design from the very beginning, we're told quite clearly here, is that you and I, that man and woman together would rule over the earth, that we would have dominion over the fish and the birds and the animals, it says in verse 26, that we would, have, that we would subdue the earth, it says in verse 28. And we're going to get more into what all that means next week in next week's sermon, but for now, let me just say that you and I were designed as rulers who would rule not only over our own realm, but over all the other realms too, and over all the rulers of those realms. Now, it's quite easy for us to read this passage and to read the Bible generally and to think it's all about us. We can read a passage like this and think that God made this creation for us to do with as we please. It sounds a lot like we've been put in charge of this place and of this planet. And that's how many would read this passage and use it as an excuse for not caring for this creation and its creatures well. After all, God does say, have dominion over all the other realms and rulers, and to subdue the earth. Therefore, some would say, we've been given this authority as rulers over the realms to kind of call the shots here on planet earth as we see fit. But we'll see as we go here, that's not really the case at all. You see, the bigger picture that we need to see as we think about this passage this morning is that the thrust of this passage is less about us being rulers over the earth and having dominion over it than it is about God being the ruler over the entire cosmos and over the entire earth and most importantly over you and I. You see, despite what we uh, like to think at times and despite how we like to act at times, the world was not set up to revolve around us. This text never suggests that God made it all for us to do with as we wish. 
Rather, he made it for himself, and he graciously granted us the responsibility to act as representatives and partners in caring for his creation in fruitful and productive ways. But so often we fail at this. We fail at recognizing and acknowledging God as, as the ruler above all rulers and as the, as the ruler above all realms. So often, because of the fallen condition of our hearts, we tend to make ourselves the supreme rulers over our lives, don't we? Just like we'll see with Adam and Eve in a few weeks, so often we insist on having the final say, on being the ultimate ruler over our lives. And when we do that, just, just as when they did that, things that were once good can very quickly go bad. If you try to make yourself the ultimate ruler over your life, just like Adam and Eve did, the intended order of things in your life will come undone. And as a result, instead of ruling over the various aspects of your life, you find yourself being instead uh, ruled by them. Instead of you doing the subduing, you find yourself as the one being subdued by one, another, one or another aspect of your life. It may be family. It may be your career. It may be romance. It may be money. It may be pleasure or comfort or security. You and I were designed to live under God, under his ultimate rule. You can see that here in this passage. But if we don't put ourselves under God, we'll find ourselves under these and other things and being controlled by them. If God is not put in a position of supreme authority over your life, if he's not the source of your value and your worth, something else will rule over you. On the other hand, if you see God as the source of everything for you, your identity, your security, your hope, and your strength, then nothing else will enslave you or subdue you in quite the same way because you found your proper place in the intended order of creation. God brings an order and a structure to our lives, a hierarchy, but that order and that structure depends on us knowing and embracing our proper place and position within it because it is only as we allow God to rule over us completely that we will ever rule rightly over our own selves and our own lives. So God brings a certain order to life as we place ourselves under his authority and under his rule. And the second point I'd like to explore for a few minutes here is how God brings not only order to life, but he brings beauty to life as well. Last week, Pastor Andrew explored some of the things about the artistry of the creation account, the artistry of Genesis chapter 1 as a biblical text. But let's talk for a moment not about the artistry of those words themselves or the structure of that text. Rather, let's talk uh, for a moment about the artistry of what God actually created and what that tells us about the artist behind the artistry. Because, friends, there is much artistry everywhere we look if we're willing to see it, if we're willing to, to slow down long enough to see it and to savor it and to consider its source. Whether we're looking through a telescope or a microscope or in the mirror, what we see above us and around us and within us should move us. It should cause us to marvel with awe and wonder about this creation. This creation in all its beauty is intended to reveal something to us about its creator. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says that ever, ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that he has made. 
One of the ways that God initially pursued me as a young man was through the splendor and the beauty of the things that he had made. When I would immerse myself in the outdoors, whether that was climbing a mountain or surfing a wave or sleeping under the stars or observing the incredible diversity of life on this planet, I can see in hindsight now how God was using all of that to stir me, to ask some big questions in my heart. Some of the same big questions we'll continue asking and answering as we journey through this book of Genesis. And to be honest, those experiences and those questions set my life on a course where I decided that that when I went off to college, I was going to dive deeper. I was going to study the life sciences and biochemistry and molecular biology. I was fascinated with life and its beauty. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to explore more. I wanted to be in awe more. And I wanted to find answers at some level. And that ended up leading me down a path that that at least for a season, really challenged my thinking about whether I even believed in a creator. You see, throughout my studies, I was taught to question everything, to to doubt everything, to demand evidence for everything, and so that's what I did. And my textbooks and my professors seemed to be saying quite confidently that, that science had arrived at the explanation of how life had arisen on Earth. And that explanation was that it was random. It was an accident. It all came about just because there was so much time and so much opportunity. It just, it just happened. This is what the textbooks taught then, and this is what the textbooks teach now, all based, in my opinion, on a few overly simplistic laboratory experiments that they will point to as their proof. And the notion of biblical creationism and the possibility of a divine cause to it all was, was very subtly but uh, somewhat arrogantly dismissed and uh, diminished by many in that setting and others in which I found myself. But here's the interesting thing. As I look back on that experience, I was very much being taught what to believe and what not to believe about the origins of the universe and about the origins of life based not so much on proof or evidence as much as on uh, presupposition. It seemed to me as though, as I thought through these things, that many professors, many people in academia and elsewhere had this sort of non-negotiable presupposition that they brought to their worldview. And that non-negotiable presupposition was that God does not exist. The supernatural does not exist. Science and only science, they would say, have the, has the answers that we need about who we are and where we came from. And because of those presuppositions that were often held onto so tightly, these people necessarily had to explain the world on naturalistic grounds. And so that's what they did. And that's what they do, even in the face of staggering odds to the contrary. Now, some were more honest and realistic about these things than others. Klaus Doss, who was a prominent scientist seeking to answer questions about the origins of life, admitted that all discussions on principal theories and experiments in this field either end in a stalemate or in a confession of ignorance. Francis Crick, the Nobel Prize winner for the co-discovery of the three-dimensional structure of DNA, calculated the likelihood of the random, spontaneous assembly of even the simplest of biological proteins, and he found it to be a statistical impossibility. And yet this same scientist would say, he would say, uh, the origin of life seems almost to be a miracle. So many are the conditions that would have had to have been satisfied to get it going and to keep it going. Some interesting analogies have been suggested about this too. 
One scientist said that the possibility of life as we know it coming about randomly by chance would be like a tornado moving through a junkyard and assembling from the metal scraps in that junkyard a Boeing 747 by accident. Or it would be like a blind person solving a Rubik's Cube by chance. Or it would be like an explosion at a printing press randomly giving rise to a dictionary or a great work of literature. There's a lot that could be said about this, but not a lot of time to do so today. But what was interesting is, is the deeper that I got into science, the more I began to conclude that if, if we're willing to check our presuppositions at the door, science is not at odds with God or faith at all. Science and nature are not contradicting God. Rather, in every way, science and nature are revealing God to us. Think about this. What does science say about the origin of the universe. Well, it says there was a beginning. It says there was nothing, and then there was something. It's called the Big Bang. And what does the Bible say about the origin of the universe? Well, we've been talking about that the past couple of weeks. It says there was a beginning. It says there was nothing. And then it says there was something. So if both agree that there was a beginning, who or what began it? Who or what set our reality into motion? Both agree it has not always been this way. Both agree there was nothing and now there is everything. The Bible says God did it on purpose and with purpose. Science says, I'm not sure. It must have just happened accidentally, without meaning and without purpose, because my worldview does not allow for any other category to explain this. My personal conclusion as I work through all of this is that everyone who believes anything about the origins of this universe and the origins of life on it does so from a position of faith, from a position of unprovable assumptions. Whether you believe God made everything or everything happened by accident, both positions require an act of faith. In fact, every worldview does at one level or another when we're asking these big questions about life and about our origins. Whatever you may believe, though, there's no denying what we can see around us in this world. All that is above us, all that is around us, all that is within us. If we'll, if we'll slow down long enough to take it in, to really take it in, it's truly staggering to ponder. So whether we're looking through telescopes or microscopes or in the mirror, we see in this creation around us a mind-boggling level of diversity and design, we see a mind-bending display of creativity and artistry. Now, this is not something we typically do, but, but I'd like you to take a look at the screen over the next few moments as we think about the artistry of God's creation and the artistry of life on that creation. You spread out the sky over empty space Said let there be light To a dark and formless world Your light was born You spread out your arms Over empty hearts Said let there be light To a dark and hopeless world Your son was born Saw that it 
girl You sent your only son for you, our girl What a wonderful maker What a wonderful savior How majestic your whispers And how humble your love With a strength like no Majestic your whisper What a wonderful God What a wonderful maker What a wonderful Savior How majestic your Those are just a few of the creatures that inhabit this planet. There are estimated to be hundreds of thousands of different kinds of species of life in the sea and on the land and in the air. And get this, if we include microbes and microorganisms, it is estimated there are 10 to 14 million different species of living things on this planet, some very big, some very small, and everything in between. And here we are as human beings, able to perceive and process, able to, to reason and deduce, able to love and to laugh and to appreciate beauty, able to experience and explain so much. But it's certainly not a simple thing. The human brain is believed to contain 100 billion microscopic neurons each of those neurons looking like a branching tree with the limbs reaching out and touching the branches of other neurons. And each single neuron can make up to 10,000 connections with the branches of other neurons within the brain. And this gives rise to an estimated 500 trillion neural connections within a single human brain. And get this, a memory is essentially a pattern of connections between different sets of those neurons. And so every sensation that you remember, every thought that you think, it changes your brain by altering the connections within that vast neural network. And so by the time I get to the end of this sentence, you will have created a new memory that will have physically changed your brain as a result of what I'm saying and as a result of what you're thinking about what I'm saying. It's been suggested by some that if we were able to create a computer using present technology that would mimic the human brain in its complexity and in its power, that the amount of electricity that would be needed to run that computer would be similar to the amount of electricity needed to, to run a small city in the middle of winter. And yet our little three-pound brains in all their complexity, they hum along on the equivalent of a mere 20 watts of energy or the amount of energy needed to, to run a small light bulb. Incredible design, incredible complexity, incredible efficiency. And so is this the work of an accident or is this the work of an artist? Two possibilities, right? It's all meaningless, it's all random or by chance. 
or it's all on purpose, and it's all with purpose. And so where do you land today? Job chapter 12, verse 7 says, Ask the animals, and they will teach you, or the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Augustine would say, if the work of the Creator's hand be so lovely, oh, how much more beautiful must he be who made them? So why is nature so moving to you and I? Why is it so moving when you look at those images of animals, when you, you look at the mountains, when you look at the sea, when you listen to the noise of the waves or the babbling of a brook? Why are you and I so moved by these things? Why is everybody so moved by these things? The Bible says the reason nature is so moving is that it's declaring the greatness of God. It's singing the praises of its maker. It's singing a song to its creator, and it's singing a song to us about our creator. But as we'll see in a few weeks when we hit Genesis chapter 3, that song for us was, was interrupted by sin. Sin distorted our ability to sing that same song and to see the full beauty of the one who created us. Because of the fall, we've been, uh, in a sense, cut off from the song of creation that we were originally designed to sing. Because of sin, we sense that song is inviting us in, but we're unable to fully join the song on our own. But because of what Jesus did, because of the gospel, we're being invited to step back into that song with the rest of creation to sing the praises of the one who made us and the one who loves us. Jesus put that song back on our lips where we can joyfully join the mountains and the trees and the animals in singing the praises of our maker together. So God brings order to life. He brings beauty to life. And we also see in this passage that he brings dignity to life. There's two reasons I say that based on this passage. First of all, and this is one of the most staggering truths to think about when it comes to who God is and who he made us to be. In verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. As we touched on a couple of weeks back, this is believed to be a conversation within the community of God, within the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit talking about their plan for humanity. And look at what they say. They say, let us make them in our image and after our likeness. Out of all the creatures God made, man and woman alone are said to be made in the image of God. Now, when I think of someone being made in my own image, the first and most obvious thing that comes to mind is my children. At some level, they are like me. They are related to me in a foundational way. They reflect me. They represent me in some ways. They share certain passions and priorities and convictions because of my influence on them and my relationship to them. And as their father, I help guide them and shape them and lead them to manage their lives and to flourish in their lives. Now, we're going to go a lot deeper into this concept of the image of God, the Imago Dei, as it's called, in next week's sermon. But for now, let's just, let's think about it in this sort of way. Being made in the image and likeness of God means that you and I, in certain regards, are like God. 
We're like God and we represent and reflect God in ways that do not apply to anything else that God has created. Human life is the pinnacle of God's creation according to the Bible. That's made quite clear in this passage and elsewhere as we see how God chooses to describe us in relation to himself and as we see later what he was willing to do for us in spite of us when we failed him. We're made in his image and likeness and this confers on every human being a certain dignity and entrusts with every human being a certain, certain responsibility and it imparts to every human being a certain potential. Every human being on this planet is made in the image of God whether they know it or not whether they believe it or not. This means that every life, friends, is important. Every life matters. Every life has something to teach us. And so let's approach others humbly and helpfully with that understanding in mind. We see another way God brings dignity to our lives in verses 27 and 28. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28 says, and God blessed them. He creates life in his own image, which is inherently dignifying. And then he brings further dignity to life by his blessing. This is the benediction of God spoken over the lives that he had created. He's saying, these are my children made in my image, and they matter, and they will have honor and respect because they're mine. They are like me. They represent me and I love them, and I'm blessing them. And look at what that blessing includes in verse 28. He blesses them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. This is a blessing of purpose. It's a blessing of participation and partnership. And it's a blessing of procreation as well. The creator who created life is now blessing the life he created with the ability to themselves create life to produce life where there was none, to make someone out of no one, just like God did. Our Father, who created us in His image as His children, gives us the blessing to be able to create our own children in our own image and His. And what greater dignity, what greater meaning, what greater purpose could God bless His children with than that? God's blessing also reminds us how he sees us in Christ. When sin entered the world, God's blessing was lost, and we fell under God's cursing instead by our own doing. But in Jesus and in the gospel, God again looks at you and I and every person putting their trust in Jesus, and he can say to you, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. He can say to you, I love you, I delight in you, I enjoy you. And friends, deep in our souls, we need that one thing more than anything else. We need to know that our maker looks at us and says, you are good, you are right, and in Jesus, I forgive you. The blessing is restored in the gospel, not because we earned it or deserved it, but because Jesus did on our behalf. And because of that, we can step into what we were built for, and that is living once again under the blessing and the benediction of our Creator. Our fourth and final point is that God brings enjoyment to life, and so should we. Over and over again in these opening verses of the Bible, God says it is good. 
He makes something and then he says it is good. The physical creation, the material world is declared good by our God who made it as he was making it. And you know what God is doing here, right? You know what he's doing when he keeps saying it is good, it is good. It's the same thing that we do all the time. We do the very same thing. After a satisfying meal, after a beautiful song or sunset, after a meaningful conversation, after a loving embrace, what do we say? What do we think? We think, oh, that's good. That's wonderful. It is very good. God is taking it in here in chapter 1 as he goes about the business of creation. He's enjoying that which he is creating. He's looking at the stars and the sun and the moon. He's looking at the fish swarming and filling the sea. He's watching the birds in their unbound three-dimensional freedom. He's taking in the flowers and the plants and the animals in all their beauty. And he's saying it is good. He's enjoying what he had created. And then right after creating man and woman in verse 31, he says it is very good. This is God enjoying what he had made, enjoying its beauty and its artistry. And he's declaring that the physical world that he created and the physical life that he created is good. In many ways, this whole idea would have been utterly unique to many people of that day. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says it would have been intellectually revolutionary in the ancient world for the book of Genesis to come in in the way that it did and to declare the material world as good. You see, there were many ancient religions and views of reality in that day that were, uh, let's say, anti-material or anti-physical. And to be honest, some Christians today mistakenly fall prey to this same sort of misplaced thinking. We're talking here about a view that sees the material world as completely corrupted and corrupting. Only the spirit, only the spiritual, they would say, is noble and virtuous and good. And they would further say that if you really want to get spiritual, if you really want to go deep in your spirituality, you need to do without the physical. You need to avoid the corrupting influences of the material world and of your flesh with all its pleasures and passions. And so these people would turn to self-denial and self-deprivation in an effort to grow in their spirituality. On the other hand, there were other religions and worldviews both then and now that were not anti-materialistic. Rather, they were only materialistic. Modern secularism certainly comes to mind in that regard. They would say that the material is all we have. This world is all we have. There's no real purpose. There's no real meaning. There's no real truth uh, to be had or to take hold of. And so you just need to do what you need to do. You need to take it in, take it all in, indulge, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. This is why so many people base their lives on that which is finite, because they see their lives as finite. And so they look to physical pleasure or wealth or sex or money or power to give them ultimate meaning in their lives. Two approaches. One is self-denial and the other is self-indulgence. But Christianity is utterly unique in this regard. It says you're both wrong. It says the material world is neither bad nor all that we have. In fact, the goodness of creation and God's enjoyment of it that we see right here in this passage is a profound motivation for us to enjoy ordinary life and to be playful and productive in God's creation as we journey through the world that is. 
And so let's take it in. Let's enjoy this creation and our lives with fullness and with joy. This means that as Christians, we are not to lead sour or dour lives. We must not be per- perpetually solemn or unsatisfied in our walk with Jesus. When you realize what's coming, friends, when you realize that your deepest and most profound experiences of love and laughter and beauty in this life are only ever so partial hints and whispers of what is to come, and that's what the Bible says they are, then we can enjoy the many things of this world all the more and in new ways here in the present without allowing them to to rule over us. And so we don't live for pleasure, but we're not afraid of it either. We don't live for achievements or accomplishments or wealth. We can rightly enjoy those things without living for those things. Now, a couple of important implications flow out of some of these things that we've been talking about. First, Genesis chapter 1 reminds us that the world was not always the way it is now. The chaos of sin and the struggle to survive were not part of the original picture. And so our hope for the future does not depend so much on us achieving something that has never been, but rather to help restore that which we ourselves have broken and lost And even though we know that the world is presently broken because of sin, this world is nevertheless important. It matters. It was created good. We broke it, and God is inviting us to step back into his story in which he is recreating and uh, restoring and renewing and redeeming all things in Christ. And so in addition to enjoying this creation, we also at the very same time work towards its renewal and its restoration This very beautiful but broken world matters. It matters to God and it should matter to us. And because of that, yes, we can enjoy God's good creation, but we also at the very same time need to to do what we can to help fix it, to help fix that which is broken around us. As Christians, it's not one or the other, but it's, it's both. And so we love, we laugh, we eat, we drink, we enjoy this life and the incredible world around us. But at the very same time, this view of the world flowing right out of the first chapter of the book of, the, of Genesis means that we also work against injustice. We work against oppression. We serve others and we meet needs. It's a beautiful passage, Genesis chapter 1. There we see God's original intent clearly seen, seen to, to bring order, to disorder, to bring beauty, to life, to bring dignity and delight into his creation and into our lives. But as we'll explore more deeply in a few weeks, in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered into the picture as Adam and Eve decided that they knew best how to rule their lives. And as a result, the world was fractured. And all of those good things done for us by God came undone and reversed. And so because of sin, the order of creation turned to disorder. The beauty of creation turned to brokenness. The blessing over humanity turned to cursing. The dignity brought to life by God turned into condemnation and guilt and shame. And this is why Jesus, the word of God, humbled himself and stepped down into his creation to set things right, to correct course for us and to get things back on track. Do you realize that what happened to Jesus on the cross was the exact opposite of what happened to him in Genesis chapter 1. In creation, he spoke, and the cosmos sprang to life. But on the cross, he spoke, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was no answer. Nothing happened. In creation, Christ brought form and substance to the void of the world. But on the cross, Christ was, he was made void for you and I. In creation, Christ filled the earth with light and life and love. But on the cross, he was emptied of those things. Jesus Christ on the cross was, was decreated. You see, that's the gospel, right? Our maker had to be unmade so that we could be remade. Our creator had to be decreated and deconstructed so that we could be recreated and rescued and redeemed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage today. Thank you for this uh, text that is so pregnant with meaning and implication for us, even here in Seattle, thousands of years after you inspired its writing. Father, would you use this passage and this message today to accomplish in us that which you intend? Would you stir our affections for you? Would you elevate our sense of awe and wonder today as we consider your beauty and your power and your artistry that is so clearly seen in the things that you have made? Would we be a people who enjoy your creation without worshiping your creation and who would care for your creation without exploiting it? Thank you for doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Thank you for restoring order to our lives, for opening our eyes to, to your beauty, for affirming our dignity in Christ, and for bringing joy to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.